I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Hey there listeners, Emily here with another little audio note. We are so excited to welcome another special guest this week, but we were having some technical difficulties, so you'll notice Anne drops out for one segment and then we had to record one segment without our lovely guest. Thank you as always for tuning in and now over to your regularly scheduled programming. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 28. Welcome back, Stacy. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Thank Guess goodness back. back. Um, <laughs> we are also super excited to welcome National Book Award winner and New York Times bestselling author Robin Benway as our guest today. Welcome, Robin. Yay. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. This is like the dream interview experience so this is great perfect for us wow. as well. robin, robin officially is favorite guest yeah like, definitely <laughs> okay so robin as we told you at the beginning of every podcast we all give a one sentence summary um, of the book from our own perspective so we're going to get right into it um okay mine is anna martin moves stacy back to stony brook because don wasn't cutting it as treasurer <laughs> Excellent. I resemble that, as Gary would say. Okay, mine is Stacy's parents have a series of heteronormative trope laden arguments that ultimately leads to gasp, divorce, and Stacy moving back to Stony Brook. All right. Mine is the McGills get divorced and make Stacy choose between life with an Upper East Side corporate workaholic dad or a third wave feminist suburban mom. And third wave. I don't know. That, okay. I mostly, I mostly just chose a number to have you get mad at us. We'll we'll like, unpack that later. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Robin. Mine was Stacy's parents get a super quick divorce and force her to choose who and what she loves most. Like I yeah. feel like within two weeks they were divorced, new house, purchased the house, sold the like. I had a lot of questions yeah. about the timing, but it's also you know I understand we got to move fast in these books though. The yeah. McGills don't fuck around they're like <laughs> no nonsense <laughs> they fought over the tiffany's bill and two weeks later everybody had decamped to yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true wait you guys we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast i'm emily crandall a feminist scholar i'm a total individual and i like health food i'm annie chikala a freelance writer i'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. And I'm Robin Benway, a young adult novelist. I'm a realistic optimist who's obsessed with her dog. Nice. Oh, oh, like that. Yeah. Thank you. Big, big Christie energy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I almost wore a visor for this. Like, Amazing. Oh, <laughs> I almost did, but I thought, no, I can't do that. <laughs> oh, we, haven't had a, we haven't had a part Christie guest since, uh, since Melissa. I'm very excited. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Deep in my blood. So if you guys want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. Also rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BC related, you can drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com.
Robin, before we get into this book, we want to get to know you a little better. So let's start with the obvious. Tell us when you first started reading the BSC and why you fell in love with them. Um, I started reading them. I am now old enough to where they were new when I was around eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. So I remember riding my bike or getting dropped off at the mall and like running into Walden books and hoping that they had the next one. And, you know, you'd look at the spine and look for number 10 or 11 or whatever. And I just loved it. I babysat a ton starting from like 10 years old, which now seems so irresponsible that like a 10 year old was babysitting anybody but okay it was the yeah. um yeah. and that's what I even did when I was through. 10 yeah that was happening yeah. yeah like I just I would I mean I was a super responsible type a very again like Christy Thomas type kid but I would have never put myself in charge of small children um but that's what I did all through high school and college so I think you know, again, at 10 and 11, it just seems so cool. They had their own phone. Claudia had her own phone. My best friend who I've known since fourth grade, she had the swatch phone, the double-sided phone, if you remember that. And that was like a super cool thing. So everything that was happening in the books reminded me so much of my life. You know, I have a friend who has her own phone. I am babysitting too. But I think what I loved about it is that, and I think this happens to so many girls, especially, is like right around 10, 11, 12, you know, puberty hits, adolescence kicks in and everyone's fighting all of a sudden. And like the people that were your best friends are now your worst enemies and you don't know why. And it's so tricky to kind of reform those friendships. And what I loved is that, you know, they have disagreements, they fight, they think Mallory's immature or whatever. And then they all would come back together at the end. And there was really these enduring friendships. And I think that's something that really appealed to me as a kid, especially again, as like an 11 or 12 year old girl. So so I've already joked a bit about getting big Christy energy from you, but have you always associated with Christy more than the others? You or know what? Did you not have at all. Not until yeah. I started thinking about it. Like I've always felt very much like a Stacey Dawn hybrid, just because mm-hmm. being from California, um, liking the California lifestyle, you know, that sort of very Dawn, easy breezy type of energy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I actually radiate that, but I try. <laughs> That's what I like. And then of course, Stacey, like I think, I went to NYU for two years, and I think a big part of that was reading Stacey and her, you know, quote unquote, sophisticated New York City lifestyle, the Bloomingdale's, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that made a huge, very, very big impression on me when I was, again, 11 years old. I I think that is why 100% of the hosts of this podcast moved to New York in young adults. I mean, she just makes it sound so great and so much fun. So why would you not want to go? But I guess I think like so many women like my age and in my career, especially, you know, you are super driven and self-possessed and have to really have that sort of I'm going to get this done energy, especially as a freelance writer, basically. Mm -hmm. No one else is going to do it if you don't. So, yeah, Yeah. I'll say. So um, we read your fantastic essay in Elle magazine about Shay and Shay's portrayal of someone who has diabetes in the Netflix show. And like, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with type 1 diabetes and how it compares with the way Stacy is portrayed in both the books and the show? Yeah, I um, I had a little bit different experience than most people. I am a type 1 diabetic, but I was diagnosed at 26 years old rather than mm-hmm. where Stacey, I think, is 12 or 11 mm-hmm. in the books. Um, I was diagnosed at the time they called it type one and a half, mostly because mm-hmm. they hadn't seen that before. And it became slowly over the years more popular. But I was diagnosed in 2003. So 
almost 18 years ago now. But um, my dad was a diabetic and had been a diabetic my entire life. So what I knew of it, what is what he was going through. So I grew up with insulin in the refrigerator and seeing my dad, you know, check his blood sugar. So, you know, in a strange sort of way, it wasn't foreign to me. It wasn't like I had no idea what to do. Mm -hmm. But what I did have to learn was how to manage it myself, because that's a very different experience. And the technology changed so much in between when my dad was a diabetic and when I was a diabetic. And even now, like when I was reading um, the book, Stacey talks about giving herself shots and having a low sugar diet. And I just, it's a world away from what I know now. And that was 30 years ago that this book was written mm -hmm. or, you know, over 30 years ago. Whereas the show, I think, does an amazing job of showing Stacey with an insulin pump and, you know, checking her blood sugar and, you know, having a juice box if she's, you know, her blood sugar is low, which is what I do. You know, I always have like a little juice pack, like a little kid's juice pack with me. Um, but my dad um, passed away from complications from diabetes nine months after I was diagnosed with diabetes. So it was a, I mean, to say it was a formative experience is to really, really be <laughs> very blunt about it. Um, I just, it changed my entire life. It made me really put a lot of things into focus. Um, that's why I became a writer because I thought, well, it. You know, I might as well go do what I want to do. I don't want to mm -hmm. miss out on anything and I don't want to not try to do something. And so, you know, it's something I manage every single day. And it's something I always think about. It's like an hourly thing for me. It'll never not be a part of my life. But I also don't feel like it's, um, I don't want to say had a negative impact because there are parts that are very negative, but it hasn't kept me from doing what I want to do, mm -hmm. so to speak. It just means that you have to plan out a lot more and you know international travel is very tricky and travel yeah. is very tricky and going anywhere you always have to think a little bit a few steps ahead but mm -hmm. that was my experience so to see it on the show in a much more modern way was life-changing like it, I can't imagine being a 12 year old girl and seeing Stacy in the show being diabetic if I had had that as a kid that would have been a game changer for sure yeah she did such an amazing job and I I think you know I always we've talked a little bit on the show about um, Stacy's diabetes in the series sort of standing in for all different types of chronic illness that kids have mm -hmm. to live with, right? Um, and obviously type 1 diabetes is a common one, but there's many, many others. Um, yeah. And so the um, I've always really liked the fact that it's there. And, you know, we see mentions of it several times in this book, but it's not other than in the truth about Stacy, it's not the main mm -hmm. plot, right? It's not the yes. thing that defines her. It's not the first thing that you mention about her. They often yeah. don't even mention it in chapter two. It may come up later when they're complaining mm -hmm. about Claudia's mm -hmm. junk food kind of thing. Um, <laughs> exactly. She would get like but, the wheat crackers or something like right. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that that's, you know, that's a thing that we didn't see a lot in the eighties. A lot of things that dealt mm -hmm. with difficulties were, you know, very special episodes. And like, that is the, the diabetic girl, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to the fashionable girl who happens to have diabetes and happens to have this as part of her story. What I like about it too, especially in the book is that that's how her parents are defined, which is exactly what they would be defined as from a 13 year old perspective. You know, like it's always her mom being like, eat some salad. Did you eat, take your insulin? And you know, what parent wouldn't be overprotective and worried, you know, at that point, especially back in the you know late eighties when the technology was so different, but I like that it's always Stacy's diabetes is always filtered through her parents and you kind of get mm -hmm. what kind of parents they are through her experiences. We've speculated a lot about what kind of parents we think the McGill's are on this show. <laughs> I have some I'm, questions. <laughs> I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that today with their divorce. Yeah. <laughs> 
Although I know I was just going to say, I, it didn't occur to me how quickly that happened until you pointed it out in yeah. your one sentence summary, Robin. <laughs> I mean, my parents divorced when I was 12 and it was fine. It was a, you know, it was not traumatic. Well, not as traumatic as most divorces could be, mm-hmm. but I remember reading this book and I was like, wait, did they sell the apartment? Like I'm putting like a 40 year old woman's perspective on it, which is, did they liquidate the apartment? How did they afford the down payment yeah. on the house? And you know, the lawyers are suddenly just there. And yeah. Yeah. It seems like they spent way more time arguing over paintings than like figuring out the logistics of the, their home situation. But that also <laughs> makes sense. Daughter. Right. Yeah. Filtered, filtered through the 13-year-old though, right? Like I imagine mm-hmm. a lot of that real estate financial paperwork is being done at night or while Stacy's at school. Like yeah. I think that she, yeah. you know, what would be obvious to her was arguing over the paintings, you know, yeah. whereas right. that's like background, even though she's a treasurer, that's like <laughs> background boring stuff that is would not make for a very riveting chapter in a BSC book for the average mm-hmm. nine-year-old peddling home from yeah. Walden books. So Esme... As a as a psychologist and as Stacy's parents were seeing a marriage counselor, and they they said that the counselor t- suggested them getting a divorce. Yeah, they're like, well, the counselor said that we should maybe consider getting a divorce. Is that what is that a marriage counselor? Is that a thing? I love so, that Stacy calls it a divorce counselor. Divorce counselor. <laughs> That's so good. Um, yeah, I that was an interesting part to me. Um, so first, let me caveat that I do a lot of family therapy, but I like actively do not do couples therapy. Like I do not like it. It is not my jam. So um, and I have a lot of friends that do. Um, so it, that would potentially be a recommendation. It seems like it wouldn't necessarily be in this case. But of course, we don't get a ton of Mr. Mm-hmm. and Mrs. McGill's inner life, right? So I don't know what went on in those sessions. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, in cases of abuse or things like that, counselors will will recommend a dissolution of the marriage for safety reasons and things like that. But um, yeah, I don't know if they would or would not. Like, I don't think like we have enough information. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly somebody might, but I also, I'm not sure how long they were going. Like if they went to somebody four times and they were like, you should get divorced. Like, honestly, that's why I'm not a marriage counselor. Cause I would probably say that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm like, this seems like a big mess. I just start why don't over. You just get divorced. Yeah. 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 <laughs> start like, over. That's, that's why I don't do it. Um, but I think a good marriage counselor, it would take a while to decide that that's, that it really is, you know, to use the eighties phrase, irreconcilable differences. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so, but, but it's not, it's not unheard of. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so interesting too that like we never and again it's all through filtered through Stacy but we never see them do like any sort of therapy or exercise or activity or there seems to be like no real energy put into saving the marriage and but if memory serves and I haven't read a lot of the books you know for some time now at this point but weren't they always fighting like weren't her parents if memory serves there was always like little hints that her parents were fighting about Stony Brook or New York or money or her dad was a workaholic I think it all culminates in this book but if memory serves their parents yeah it culminates here it doesn't start until goodbye Stacey goodbye so mm-hmm. in the beginning, that's not a plot, but right. Like it starts like, and we get most of the hints of it that, you know, the one Stacy book between goodbye, Stacy, goodbye and welcome back. Stacy is Stacy's mistake. The, the famous Philip Mignon, um, all the hayseed <laughs> Stony Brookers come to New York book. Um, and it, it's definitely in that one. 
And then there's times in the other books where like Claude's yeah. on the phone with Stacy and she mentions that her parents are having a hard time or like only Stacy and her mom come to Meanie's funeral. Mr. McGill doesn't come. Um, yeah. So there are shadows of it, but it's not from the very beginning of the series. Okay. That makes sense. But yeah, I think she did do a nice job foreshadowing it in the same way she foreshadows like Jeff moving back to California. Like yeah. we, or know, even it's like slowly builds. Mimi or Mimi yeah. 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 That was, I remember as a kid reading the books before the one where Mimi dies and being like, oh, like, yeah. this doesn't look good for Mimi. So, but yeah. yeah, it's, I don't know. It's funny. It's, I get as a kid of divorce who's like parents divorced when I was 12, which is very close to Stacey's age. I just thought I was reading this going, this doesn't remind me at all of my parents divorce. But at the mm-hmm. same time, I remember reading it and being like, oh, Stacey's parents are getting divorced. So I think I just put too much of an adult filter on it the way I didn't, you know, when I was going through it as a mm-hmm. kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what, I have a lot of thoughts on the portrayal of divorce, and then I have some data to share with you guys. But what what did, you know, so the speed was there. I think we also have a 50-50 um, panel about this. So both Anne and I, our parents are still married, and then Emily and Robin's parents are divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, although, Emily, you were a lot younger when your parents Very were young. Yeah, I was left. thinking about how Stacy's sort of... So- quasi soliciting advice from some of her friends and Dawn's like well are they fighting what are they fighting about like how how, how long has it been and I was like oh, I don't remember a single fight I was way too young like I can't yeah. I couldn't tell you <laughs> I I loved Dawn in this book yeah. I thought Dawn was like let me give it to you straight are they fighting about you that's not a good sign <laughs> like, yeah but also like so protective of Stacy too you know Dawn's already been through it and come out on the other side I thought that was such a great portrayal of friendship where she's able to just be like look out here we go. Yeah. 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 Dawn's empathy is really on high display mm-hmm. in this book. And it her is. note to the other girls in the notebook of like, we can't, I know we want her to come back, but you guys cannot pressure her. She has enough going on. Like she has yeah. to make her own decision. I love that. Yeah. They, I love that use of the diary to like, everybody pay attention. Eyes on me. You know, this is what I'm trying yeah. to tell you. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I thought Claude and, and Lane were also really well portrayed in not knowing what to do. You know, this is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when you're 12, 13, 14, you know, giving advice about something that you have no experience with is really challenging and really mm-hmm. confusing. And so the fact that both Claude and Lane are like, oh yeah, my parents don't ever fight. I don't really, uh, I'm sorry. You yeah. know, <laughs> um, I thought was really realistic to 13 year olds. I thought it was very, um, a lovely portrayal of friendship too, especially toward the end when Claudia says, it's okay if you're not entirely happy to be back. Like, you know, she's really giving Stacy the space to mourn what she has and, you know, the understanding that you don't always get everything that you want, that you're going to make some sacrifices or that sacrifices are going to be made on your behalf that you now have Mm -hmm. to deal with, which is what kids go through when their parents divorce. And I thought that was so lovely that Claudia just says it so offhandedly, you know, is it a realistic portrayal of a 13 year old? I don't know, but I think it's something that very much needs to be said in the context Mm -hmm. of the book too. So I thought that was a really, really good way to, to do that. Yeah, I, I think it I think it was realistic, particularly for someone who, you know, Claudia has been through some things recently, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mimi's only passed a couple of books ago. Like, I think she understands that, like, emotions are complex, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. thinking back to some of the times in Claudia and the Sad Goodbye where she wants to talk about Mimi one minute and then she doesn't want to talk about it at all the next minute. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, she's she doesn't she hasn't been through a divorce, but she knows that Stacy's not going to just be like, yay, everything's great. I'm back here and everything's the same. Mm-hmm, um, exactly. Yeah. It is a, in a way it is like a grief and it is a mourning process. It's a, you readjust 
everything about your life, especially if you're moving, even though she's going back to a place she knows it's a new home, her dad's not there. She has to get used to going back and forth, even though she's familiar with both places, it's just a different feel to it. So yeah, it is a, an adjustment to put it mildly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought this was, a, you know, to, to give my sort of stamp of approval, I definitely could tell that Anna Martin wrote this book. I thought that it was really well done. I thought um, it, similar to Claudia's grief process, I thought she did a really nice job shading in all of the different emotions that mm-hmm. a kid of this age would go through during a divorce, like the shame, the urge not to tell her friends that the, the first person she tells is Judy, the homeless woman down the street. Instead of <laughs> Judy else. dropping some truth yeah. bomb. Yeah. Yeah, she- <laughs> There's a part where Judy starts yelling about, you know, capitalism and CEOs mm-hmm. of corporations. And I was like, yeah. mm, Judy was ahead of her time there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also love too the parts where Stacy decides that she's going to play matchmaker and you know I think that's such a a thing at 12 or 13 where you're like well clearly they just need to remember why they're together and I will put them Mm -hmm. in this horse-drawn carriage through Central Park and that will immediately fix all of the problems and you know I felt so bad that her parents kind of kept letting her do that that they didn't kind of say we know what you're doing we see yeah yeah this isn't working you know we appreciate it but but I thought that was such a a kid thing to do like I'll just make sure they sit together at the movies and they'll you know they'll fall back in love and I really love I did think however that it was a missed opportunity to remind us that Don's favorite movie is The Parent Trap (laughs) (laughs) a revival at a theater in New York (laughs) yeah but I do, I love when she does that with Stacy because I think this is part of why Stacy's such a wonderful character is that she, you know, she's not like a sophisticated stereotype, you know, like it's very clear that she's always still a kid. Um, yeah. And, you know, Anne's, Anne's been uh, obsessed is maybe too strong a word, but Anne is very interested in the fact that Stacy's favorite movie is Mary Poppins and that it comes up frequently. <laughs> um, and I think this is in that category, right, of this kind mm-hmm. of idealistic sort of simplistic view of adult relationships and the disillusion of a marriage to be like, yeah, just go out to eat or I'll make you yeah. this dinner on a card table and that will yeah. make you not want to move <laughs> because you're making this, they're making this choice so lightly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was so interesting too in the book where she's laying out the pros and cons of Stony Brook versus New York that I'm like, do you really like being in New York? Because your friends don't sound great. You don't seem to like your school that much. There's a lot of peer pressure. And I thought that was really sweet that she wouldn't see it. But then when she laid it out in those bullet points, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder if there's a little bit more of a reckoning there too. I think in the books, it's like Stacy New York, Stacy sophisticated, Stacy cool. And, you know, you don't always get that feeling that maybe that's what she likes. It's just what she's grown to know. And that's what's familiar mm-hmm. to her. Yeah. I think it's interesting too that Lane is the one who's like, I saw your list. Like, I think you made the right choice. Yeah. 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 I love that Lane shows up with locks and bagels. Yeah. Like, I was like, <laughs> yeah. my, my grown friends aren't bringing me that. Like, <laughs> on moving day. Yeah. On moving day. Yeah. She shows up with this huge, you know, last New York spread. And I thought that was, that was such a. Well, she bought it with her buckets of money. Yeah, I was going to say she probably had her doorman at the Dakota do it for her. (laughs) (laughs) They talk about her dad being a Broadway producer. And, you know, my COVID brain was like, ooh, that's what's going on. I hope he's okay. (laughs) They might not be living in the Dakota anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the poor Cummingses. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they're fine. 
I'm sure they'll bounce. Esme, do the McGills do a good job of getting divorced? <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. I spent a lot of time with the literature this week trying to look into these things. And divorce is really hard to study in terms of like what's the best thing because the specific issues are so individualized, right? And so even if you did like what we call a quasi-experimental design where you looked at kids before and after a divorce and tried to like draw conclusions based on the custody arrangements or based on how people made custody decisions, there's so many third variables that could account for how kids are adjusting, right? From Mm -hmm. things like their baseline school achievement to how many friends they have to race and economic factors and community factors. So there's really no way to actually know, like, this is the proper way to get divorced. Mm -hmm. But I I was, I was quite interested in the fact that they put the whole decision on Stacy. And that seemed like a lot to me. Um, And yes, Stacy's sophisticated. And yes, you can see a kindness there of like, we're going to be neutral and it's really okay. But Stacy knows that it's not really okay and Mm -hmm. that it's not neutral. And to me, the most heartbreaking scene in the whole book is when she tells her dad, I'm going to cry because I cry every episode. But um, when she tells her dad (laughs) that she's going to move into Stony Brook with her mom was just such a like, oh, yeah, heartbreak. Um, And so it just seemed like a lot of pressure to me. And I couldn't find any data about this, again, because of the problems of studying it quasi-experimentally. But I found a lot of, like, blogs from different family law attorneys (laughs) and (laughs) saying, don't do that to your kids. Like, this is your job as a parent. And um, you have to think about what is best for the kid. But in a case like this where neither of the McGills is necessarily very problematic, I think it's not clear cut. Like she, like of course we think this is the right decision because we want to see Stacy in the Babysitters Club. But it, like she could have been okay with her dad in New York, right? There's no actual problem there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't know how they would have made it if they didn't have her choose. Mm-hmm. You know, and I also was trying to think of like what's the age at which I think it makes you know because when I work with 16, 17 year olds, the parents are very much like, you decide because it doesn't make sense anymore when they, maybe they've been divorced since the kid was little and they had a rigid custody agreement. But then, you know, like you and Aaron went back and forth, I feel like sort of randomly by the time you were in high school, like to your moms and dad, like it wasn't rigid, was it? Uh, but it was a point of contention. I mean, uh, it was like, okay. you know, we got really caught up in our social lives and right. would try to get out of going to our dad's house because it was right. far from our friends. And that was like, right. not, cool of us to do and when we were as adults we were like oh that was a fucked up teenage thing to do to our dad but right but that's what teenagers do I mean yeah just to resolve you a little bit of that (laughs) like you're (laughs) supposed to be seeing your friends like that's your job as a teenager sure yeah but But like you know that you know my dad was never like this is custody you have to come but he was like okay I would like to spend time with my children why are you guys being teenagers (laughs) but yeah yeah I see what you mean yeah, it wasn't like you have to go and you have to like it just no. some, you know, usually in amicable divorces, it gets a little looser as kids get older. But she is still just 13, even though she's kind of a sophisticated. 13. So, you know, the answer is there's not a really good answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I would think it's probably better for the parents to just, you know, take into account what the kid says and what they're thinking, but say, ultimately, this is not going to be your decision. We want to hear from you and then we'll yeah. make a decision. To sort of I really, 
I love seeing Stacy make what the choice of what she wanted to do, because I think in that situation, if you have a really empathetic kid or like a really sensitive kid, they might not make the decision based on what they want, but what they, they don't want to hurt the parents. They might go with the parent that they feel will be hurt the most. And that's, you know, why you probably shouldn't let your child, you know, at a young age, make that kind of decision. Mm -hmm. But I really love that it showed her having the agency to sit down and say, dad, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to live with mom in Stony Brook. And then also to see her and her dad be mournful about it together. You know, there, Mm -hmm. there is no successful solution to this problem. You know, there is going to be, again, a lot of compromise. And I really like that you see a young girl and a young woman going, no, this is what I want. And so I am going to do this. And I thought that was really important. Yeah. yeah, I liked that he also said, I'm not, you know, you didn't hurt me. I'm just sad because I will miss miss you. It, like, yeah, it was, I think yeah. A, a nice way to to deal with that. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, there's also like, I remember. <laughs> are you crying? I remember, <laughs> <laughs> I remember like. I, we would see my dad either every weekend or every other weekend, again, just depending on what was going on, school. It was hard, though, because you see your friends on the weekend, like you were saying, Emily, and then oh, dad's half an hour away and we're not going to hang out. It was like very much like my mom's life and my dad's life. And we went back and forth between. But also there's this pressure to have like a perfect weekend with your parents that you're staying with because they don't get that much time. And so you don't get to have all those little, you know, little menial fights or silly arguments that, you know, maybe my brother and I would have with my mom because we were with her five days out of the week. But on the weekends, it was always like, we're going to go to the movies and go out to breakfast and have like this great experience just to kind of cram in as many good times as possible. And sometimes it leads to, I like that they were talking about her going to visit her dad for a longer time, just because sometimes you need that, that longer time to sort of settle in back and, you know, going back and forth between those two homes. Yeah, Dawn has a, a phrase for that that she uses in an earlier book where when they come back, her and Jeff are coming back from a trip to California before yeah. he's moved back and she calls um, calls it the Disneyland dad. Oh, I like, remember reading that. We, yeah. we spend a week there and all we do is go to Disneyland and like have the best time and then, but it's like not really, it's not like the day-to-day kind of dad yeah. things that we had before. It's this different kind of you know, fun dad thing. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what we did with my dad was we went to Disneyland. I think he was a, a newly single dad who was like, I have two teenagers that I have to occupy for, <laughs> you know, two or three days. And so we would get like Disney passes and go to Disneyland. And that resonates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Any other divorce questions you guys have? No. I did find one study that, that segues into your section, Emily, which is an experimental study where they used hypothetical um, descriptions of divorce, and they had people rate who should get custody um, in these different sort of divorce vignettes. And they did it in Argentina, Brazil, and the U.S. Um, and let shocker, me guess, something is sexist. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird, right? It's weird. Um, it turns out that people were more likely to rate mothers as good parents, um, and that this was explained by warmth related traits like friendliness, oh, generosity, God. trustworthiness, 
that mothers were related warm and the people associated warmth more with female over male nouns. They did a series of studies. Um, and so just to look at the way gender stereotypes can influence judges and juries when it, not juries, there's no juries in family court usually, but um, <laughs> influence judges and um, mediators and things like that when, when it comes to court. Of course, the, the best thing to do if you can is to stay out of court as the McGills did because court in itself is traumatic. But yeah, Emily, it turns out there's um, there's some sexism. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> and a shocking yeah. twist in family court. Yeah. It is interesting. Um, I was thinking about the the stereotype of like the overwork overworking mm-hmm. father and the sort of shopaholic mother and that kind of like deeply laden um you know, trope laden fights that they were having about their, as their marriage is dissolving. And I was like trying to figure out whether we're supposed to read Mrs. McGill's assertion that she needs to do something with her life as a kind of like proto feminist move or like what, what are the sort of gender politics of that? Cause it strikes me as on the one hand, like what we see a little bit and sort of like Stacy's assessment of what's going on between her parents has roots in something kind of like, you know, 1950s and 60s, like problem, Betty Friedan's problem that has no name, right? That there's all these women who've been college educated, but they don't have careers open to them. They've, you know, their entire adults' lives have been consumed with reproductive labor and they're not, they're, you know, going to see therapists who are prescribing them tranquilizers and telling them not to read books because it's ma- that's what's making them unhappy. And like, you know, and they're like, you yeah, and they're like unfulfilled, right? And there's something, and then they they think there's there's something wrong with them because as women they're supposed to be, uh, you know, completely fulfilled at being mothers and caregivers, and and yet like, you know, they're they're sick because they're not right. And so I think this is in some ways kind of like an '80s version of that. Um, but also like told from the perspective of a 13 year old. So it's like, okay, well, she's like, well, why is my mom shopping a lot? You know, Mm -hmm. I think she's bored, right? Like she misses my, misses my dad. And so, uh, you know, but then Mrs. McGill's like, okay, wait, I I want a job. Like, and so there's a bit of a kind of like idle housewife trope thing happening here too. And we're seeing Mrs. McGill, Mrs. McGill, um, you know, talk about wanting something more. So I, I don't know. I'm wondering like what we all think about how to read that. Like what are the sort of feminist politics of that? Cause it strikes me as kind of minimal, but potentially promising. I don't know. I'm curious to see where, where she goes. I was so struck by like the logistics of it because she's like, Stacy's getting older. She doesn't need me as much, you know, which is true. I want to have a job. I want to go back to work. I'm like, you're in New York city. What is stopping you from, Surely there's more opportunities there than there are going to be in Stony Brook, Connecticut, which, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a bustling, you know, career zone. But I was so surprised by that. I thought if that's if that's what you want, is it that your husband doesn't want you to do those things? Because I didn't get that from the book that her dad was. He just thought she was spending too much money, which, well, you know, table that for in a minute. But I was just like, if that's what she wants to do, which I'm sure a lot of moms feel as their kids start to get a little bit older what's what's the problem? Why why can't you go look for a job in New York and let Stacey have more independence? But I didn't know what there was going to be about Stony Brook that was so different about that. Well, it's interesting too. So we've seen a little bit of like, 
shade kind of thrown Stacy's mom's way throughout the novels. And we've been sort of speculating about whether Anna Martin is kind of like the, the, that um, era feminist who's like housewife equals bad, right? This is a problem. Mm-hmm. This is a problem mm-hmm. for women that women elect to be housewives and that they, you know, feel fulfilled in that role. And I think here we're like, you see Mr. McGill saying like, why don't you get a job then? And this kind of like in, in, in the midst of an argument that Stacy's overhearing and yeah. her explanation for wanting to go to Stony Brook is that like, it's a slower pace, but there's also, I think there's an undercurrent of sort of manipulation a little bit, right? She's like, if I move to Stony Brook, Stacy will come with me. I think there's a little bit of that going on here. If I like, move back to the town where my daughter's, all of her best friends live, <laughs> and yeah. her bustling career as a babysitter, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I think there's still a kind of, like, underlying sort of criticism of, of Mrs. McGill here a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that if that's manipulation, her dad has the same issue, though. I mean, he's staying mm-hmm. in New York, which she purports to love, and he'll be closer to some of the shops and museums that she likes. And, like, there's there's, you know, like, his exposed brick and his wood burning fireplace and like <laughs> I was like where is this apartment this yeah, sounds I know. Yeah. Um, upper east uh, side you know but I, but what about Mrs. McGill's legitimate experience of having a better time when she I mean it sounds like she felt happier in Stony Brook and she liked mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. there I can also imagine if she hasn't you know, potentially she's never been in the workforce. We don't know mm-hmm. their backstory. She may have yeah. married Mr. McGill straight. I, I assume she's college educated just based on the, based on other demographics in the book, but she might've married him senior year or right after. And so I can imagine Stony Brook being a less intimidating place to get a first job mm-hmm. than Manhattan. That's true. Right. Like, oh, yeah. I can talk to Mrs. Kishi and maybe I can volunteer at the library and maybe I can help out at the art center. Like, I think, it's, you know, it's based on personal connection and it's ba- and it's smaller and it's not, you yeah. know, you're at a boutique and all these people are coming in and you have to be a certain way. Like, I can imagine that seeming a, har- a bigger leap, even though there may technically be more jobs, as you point out, Robin. That's yeah. true. That's a good point. I feel like Am I projecting on this? Does Stacy's mom end up becoming a realtor in the later books? Or am I imagining? Am I totally making that up? I have no memory. Okay. <laughs> I, want I didn't pay much to attention to Stacey's estate. mom. Still have to email me if she does once you keep going okay. because yeah. <laughs> let me know. I Because I think that's like a very, very big career move for newly divorced moms because you can set which is what my mom did like you can set your own hours it allows you to actually make you know a fairly healthy living depending on where you live and what the home prices are but I think that's why so many women who are maybe a little bit more middle-aged so to speak you know they end up going into that I feel like I remember her becoming a realtor but now I'm gonna have to google wikipedia I mean it fits but I don't know (laughs) I also think we can't um underestimate this transition. I've, I've worked with a lot of teens with type one diabetes who were diagnosed Mm -hmm. young, whose parents were, you know, super advocates and like super involved in like national diabetes research foundation and, you know, um, doing fundraisers and working with doctors and, and then the kids get to be teens and they're like, can you get out of my pancreas and out of my face, you know, like let me live my life. And so then that if they weren't working, if their main thing was like advocating for their child, taking care of their child's health and volunteering for diabetes, and that is sort of attempted to be taken from them by the child, that's mm-hmm. that's a big identity gap too. And yeah. so 
I, you know, I wonder if the McGill's stayed together longer because of the timing of Stacy's mm-hmm. diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. Yeah. Strong for her and come together to figure it out and get her stable. And then if now that Stacy's doing well and like has her diabetes kind of on lock as much as you can. Yeah. Um, that also leaves Miss McGill, you know, off. I mean, off ground. you're not just advocating for your kid. You're trying to keep them alive. You know, like you're really just trying to like make sure they live. That's a huge, huge goal. You know, you're not just more than like a normal parent just trying to make their child stay alive and thrive, but that's such a scary thing. And it's such an, um, an insidious disease that I can see why that would just become such an all encompassing part of a parent's yeah. life. But yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that, but that's maybe why they stayed together for so long. I do think it's interesting too, though, that like with this kind of budding narrative about Mrs. McGill's kind of need for economic independence, there's like, if we're thinking about the kind of history of family law, right, historically, family law, even in spite of the fact that, you know, these hypothetical studies you mentioned as me, like associate caregiving with women or parenting with women or female oriented kind of language and um, adjectives. Historically, uh, family law has been not favored women, right? Historically, family law has favored economic independence and economic deep women's economic dependence on men has been a burden for them in courts to win custody and things like that. And so it's kind of interesting, Mm -hmm. like, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly in when this book came out, like what the, what the contemporary kind of landscape of family law was in that, in that exact moment. But historically that would have been, it would have been harder for Stacey's mom to get to, to get custody of Stacy under these conditions where she's like totally jobless and completely um, dependent on, she would have been dependent on um, uh, what would Mr. McGill have paid her alimony? Is that alimony? what it's called? Alimony yeah. and child support too. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I'm curious to see where, what sort of whether or not this move on the part of Stacy's mom ends up being a kind of proto-feminist one. I think we'll, we'll have to learn more about as they're, more about that as the books with Stacey proceed. Ooh, I hope she enjoy it, joins like an encounter group, like an encounter, like a women's encounter group. Like I hope she has like, <laughs> you know, a bunch of people over with mirrors and they look at their vulvas. Like, like <laughs> I want this whole, our like, bodies ourselves. Yeah, this whole, like sexual awakening for Mrs. McGill. The world um, is your oyster, Mrs. Miguel. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. As long as she doesn't join whatever that women's club is that the women on Christie's side of town are part of. <laughs> oh, and Mrs. Arnold. Yeah. Mrs. Arnold's in the women's club. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, what did you make of Judy's? So, so you know, Stacy practices telling people about the divorce by telling the unhoused woman, Judy, near her apartment building. And Judy says, crying shame. And Stacy's not sure if Judy's being a dick and like, you know, <laughs> highlighting that Stacy's problems are not real problems compared to hers, or if she actually means it. And I was just curious, like what, what you made of, I was sort of pleased to see Judy again and, and kind of what you made of that, given what we talked about in Welcome and uh, Stacy's Mistake. Yeah. I mean, frankly, I prefer, you know, when Stacy's like, oh, when she calls me Missy, she's in a good mood. When she doesn't, she's in a, a bad place. And I think I prefer Judy in the bad place. Frankly, I think her, you know, sharp analytic eye is on point, right? She's like, mm-hmm. the <laughs> the corporations are coming for us. We got to, you know, we got to <laughs> be vigilant. And she wasn't wrong. I think it was a very prescient observation in the late 80s in New York City. I dog-eared that page when I read it. I was like, Judy, <laughs> hold down. Like, this yes. is, 
Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Judy can also have room to appreciate the trials and tribulations of a 13-year-old whose parents are going through divorce. I think she's capable of, of all perspectives. I like that Stacy was practicing, like you said, or like she was practicing telling people. And I love that, like, one of the first persons she tells, she's like, what does that mean? Like, it doesn't reassure her in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing, it's just you know, Judy being cryptic. More confusion. Yeah. Thanks, Judy. Oh, there was that other, the the way race gets dealt with very quickly in this book was kind of interesting too. Stacy spends a lot of time in her setup chapters explaining how Jesse's family is one of the only black families in Stony Brook and how um, her babysitting charges are the only yeah. one of the only black families in their building and talking about how they're not black to me. They're just normal people who happen to be black. And it's a kind of um, I think speaking back to some other questions we, or other sort of discussions we've been having lately about the kind of like late 80s promise of multiculturalism as this like colorblind sort of flat equality thing is like alive and well in in 13 year old mm-hmm. Stacy's like assessment of her black neighbors and black friends but it's it's mm-hmm. it's like she spends so much time on it at the beginning and then it just disappears which I thought was kind of funny yeah she like I remember reading and again I dog-eared this page too she says when I'm with the walkers who are the kids that she babysits in Manhattan she says I don't think of them as black just as people and it's mm-hmm. very much like that I don't see color I don't see race and you know it's mm-hmm. you know in the late 80s that pass for what anti-racism and certainly you know that's not the case now but that really stuck out to me I was like ooh, like a little yeah hope, you know I think the show has been able to write the course a little bit of that that kind of thinking and has definitely you know mm-hmm. updated it correctly and made it more um uh, what's the word I'm looking for multifaceted rather than yeah. just like I don't see race I only see people I see the human race you know that's not mm-hmm. That's not the best yeah. way to do this. I've yeah. never understood the big deal about black or white, Jewish or Christian, Irish or Polish or Chinese or Mexican or Italian or who knows what. <laughs> or who knows what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't, Stacy. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so those were most of my sort of political observations from this mm-hmm. book. I think we've. Like, what do we think of Mr. McGill? Well, do we know what he does? Because they talk about how he's a workaholic, he's in the office, and again, my middle-aged perspective that they're buying homes and he's been able to get a pre-war two-bedroom apartment, they haven't, you know, gotten rid of the apartment they have yet. I'm like, how much money is he making? But we never really know what he does. He's sort of just like New York businessman, you know, what Mm -hmm. he works, he sleeps at the office sometimes, he has a suit, like okay like it felt like like a yeah. like a lego character you know like with <laughs> just like put the sensible haircut on the lego character and this is mr mcgill do we know what he does as i'm look i'm looking right now on the fandom wiki uh okay early <laughs> in his career edward edward and worked as a public defender but at some huh. point he switched to the more lucrative field of corporate law <laughs> He's for a lawyer. Reasons, for unknown reasons, he was transferred back to New York, to, from New York to the Stanford offices shortly before, and then transferred to New York. And he's made. Oh, then later he becomes vice president. Interesting. Mm. So corporate law that makes sense. My opinion of him solidified when he referred to his new apartment as his new pad. <laughs> <laughs> say more, Anne. Say more about the meaning behind that for you. I don't know. Just like, why would it sounds like someone who's about to go through like a midlife crisis, essentially? Oh, one hundred percent. Right. Yeah. 
like my new pad. Like yeah. what? No, yeah, he's gonna like get he a hot tub. Have got a sports car. Art. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because our other corporate lawyer in the series is Mr. Pike. Yeah, I, I was feel just like say that. he is he is portrayed as like the chillest corporate lawyer that ever lived. Like he's on a two week vacation and he doesn't bring any work along and he's mm-hmm. like his so. eight kids have no rules. <laughs> right. Oh, it's it's chaos. Yeah, it's absolutely chaos. <laughs> So I think we've talked a lot about the divorce and, you know, what's interesting to me as a, you know, person that writes for work, but writes decidedly nonfiction um, is, you know, this is beautifully done despite the speed of the divorce. As we've mm-hmm, talked mm-hmm. about, the emotions and everything else are really well rendered. And um, Anna Martin's parents aren't divorced. She didn't have children herself. Um, she did all of this very, very well. Um, and so I'm curious of you as an author, Robin, you know, I just finished your book, Far From the Tree, which everybody should read. It's amazing. So I'll fangirl at you for a minute now. I really, really love it. Um, National Book Award winner. But I I have to assume that you yourself did not have all of the experiences in that book, because that would be a lot in one person's life. So one of the characters (laughs) is pregnant at 16. She's adopted. There's a character in foster care. There's a lot about adoption and the foster care system, as well as teen pregnancy and those processes. And so I'd love to hear a little bit from you about your process in doing the research for that book and kind of where the seed of the idea came from and then how you go about it. Because as someone who's worked a lot with adopted kids and kids in foster care, it mm-hmm. all, you know, I haven't had those experiences myself, but I've spent a lot of time talking to teenagers about their inner lives who have had that experience. And it was, it, the book just seemed so realistic to me and so um, carefully rendered and nicely done in a way that um, was frankly surprising. Um, for, oh. you know, another, another white lady like myself, um, <laughs> out in the world. And so, well, you know, you. I, yeah. So I'd really love to hear like how you go about doing that and where you start when it comes to research for something that's a, you know, a, a decidedly creative endeavor. Well, thank you. First of all, that's incredibly kind. Thank you very, very much for all the nice words about it. Um, when I first thought of the idea, it was um, a song that I heard on the radio, and it just immediately sparked this idea of a girl having a child and placing that child for adoption and not knowing, you know, hoping that that child sort of retains the love that she has for that child, even though she might never see that child again. And and I immediately just in those, you know, four minutes of a pop song, I, I knew who Grace was, and I knew who Joaquin was, and I knew who Maya was, and I loved the idea of three siblings from very different lives coming together and having to form a brand new relationship, you know, in a way that maybe they wouldn't have had had they all grown up together. Um, and when it, I was so intimidated by the research um, and the, the characters, you know, I was so intimidated by their stories, but I didn't know how to neutralize any of it. Like I really wanted to, if I'm going to write about adoption, I want to write about adoption. If I write about foster care, I really want to make sure that I'm addressing it, not the sensationalistic aspects, but just what does this feel like? And so I spent about six months researching the book and I talked to so many people. I talked to people who adopted privately. I talked to foster dads, talked to foster kids. I talked to, um, Teen Moms, like I just did so much research. I watched uh, Teen Mom on MTV, which again is pretty sensational and stylized, but there's a lot there. There's a lot happening. And especially for the character of Grace, you know, watching Teen Mom, it's like the girl has the baby and the boys are still playing Xbox, you know, and meanwhile, the girl's dropping out of high school and figuring out diapers and worrying about money and living with her parents still. And I just, I wanted to kind of shine a light on that, that, you know, it comes down to this young girl making 
huge life-changing decisions. And, you know, Joaquin in the book is half Mexican and he's going through the foster care system. And I think doing all of the research, what I realized was that I cannot tell everybody's story. So I better figure out what each character's story is. And I, I can't worry about people not relating to it. You know, there are, I've gotten um, letters from foster parents who were furious about the book and furious that foster care was portrayed in, in somewhat, I think, of a negative light. They were just furious. And then I got an email from foster kid who was furious that it was portrayed so positively. And I think as a writer, I can't control how people react to my book. All I can control is making sure that my characters are as well-researched and as um, three-dimensional as possible. And to mm -hmm. do that, I have to make sure their stories are very specific because if I don't, I'm just going to be painting them with the most rudimentary brushstroke possible, which isn't good for anybody. And, you know, that's hard because you are in some way surrendering the fact that not every single person is going to adore your book. But, you know, the, the bright side is that the comments that I do get from kids who have been through the foster care system or young moms or teen moms or you know, kids who were placed for adoption, those emails are so beautiful and so heartfelt and their stories are so real that, you know, you're not going to get it right for everybody, but you're going to get it right for someone. And, you know, yeah. that's, I think what, that what good literature does is either you can empathize or learn how to sympathize. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, no, I think, that, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that because they're so three-dimensional, there's something, again, if you haven't been through any of those experiences that you can relate mm -hmm. to, that you can think about how would I feel if I was in that situation. You can see these different ways of processing and, and managing um, mm -hmm. depending on where you come from. That's interesting that somebody would think it was really negative. I just don't think it's that negative. But <laughs> no, I, I think it just, I think it hit a nerve. You know, I think especially if you are a foster parent, like you see a lot and you do a lot, you do so much. And I can see if you read the book at maybe a wrong day or the wrong time or the wrong place, you know, you, you would take it personally. And, you know, I am very, very, I don't respond to angry emails just because I'm not looking to get into a fight with anyone. And I'm certainly not looking to say you're wrong. You're, you feel, no, you feel how you feel. Like it's not my job to tell you that you're wrong about that. But I kind of look at it as like, okay, if you need to vent, if you need to be upset about it, go ahead. Like, here's my inbox. You can be upset and mm -hmm. I will put your email aside and okay. You know, it still punches a little bit when you get it. Cause you're just like, Oh, I failed. You know, that feeling of I failed yeah. this person, but maybe this is not the book for that person. Maybe there's a different book for that person. You know, mm -hmm. like I can't, be the book for everybody. But yeah, I think also too, especially with young adult literature, and I think what all three characters in Fire from the Tree go through, it's learning how to be independent from your parents and their choices, which is a little bit, you know, to bring it back around full circle, what we see with Stacey, like, how do you make your own choices, even though your parents' choices affect so much of your life as a child and as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I love that about YA. It's that you see that with Grace, she has to make a choice that her parents can't help her with. And she has to deal with that trauma and that grief alone. And, you know, Maya's learning how to separate from her mom who has a drinking problem. And Joaquin is trying to figure out how to relate to his parents rather than separate. You know, he's trying to do the opposite. How does he join a family? And I, I really like that about YA just because that's something that I think every teenager goes through regardless of what the external circumstances are. Absolutely. It's about that identity yeah. development and finding your mm -hmm. own path along the way. We've talked a lot too about all the different kinds of divorce that we get in the Babysitter's Club series. So you mean you, at the very beginning, you have the Christie example, right? That's the kind of, which which is a, you know, absent deadbeat dad trope that exists for a reason right there. Yeah. And then you see Don kind of have this really different experience. And now we have Stacey with a kind of third even 
version. And even as Stacy's making her own choices, right, she's like going through the different setups of people, other people she knows who have divorced parents. And it, like mm-hmm, you kind of mm-hmm. see her working through the idea that like not all divorces are going to be the same and like we're going to have to figure out a divorce that like works for us <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I love too that um, – like the fact that she is thinking, well, this kid's parents are divorced and that's what this looks like. And this, this is what that looks like. And it's just like, it's important to see all, that's what's great about having seven main characters, you know, is that you Mm -hmm. can do so many different examples of it and all are valid. And, you know, I think that's a big part of why Babysitter's Club has stayed so, you know, resonant over time is that you do get so many layered experiences that then play out over what 150 books you know there you see the ramifications of those decisions and choices which is hard to do in you know children's literature Mm -hmm. okay and help talk to us about the dakota (laughs) so okay so the dakotas you guys are familiar with the dakota just from kind of cultural references right and of, course it, and of course, the Babysitter's Club. <laughs> well, yes, there. where I first learned about it is in the Babysitter's Club, naturally. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So I guess the Dakota is most famous for, well, it was the Rosemary's Baby was, mm-hmm. you know, shot there. But also John Lennon was murdered there in 1980. Um, so it's kind of interesting that if Lane's, Lane had lived at the Dakota her entire life, she would have been there, living there. Oh, night. shit for that event. <laughs> I don't know why that was so revolutionary to both me and Emily. But Whoa! Those are pieces of information that just live in very different parts of my brain. Is that what it's like for you too, Em? So what you're telling me is that in the Babysitter's Club universe, Lane watched John Lennon get murdered. Yes, yeah, so she was the sole witness. I think she identified um, what was his name? The Mark David Chapman? Is that yeah, his name? I think one of those it. three named I, I i wanted to say mark evan jackson but it definitely wasn't him no jonathan taylor thomas <laughs> no. honestly <laughs> i wouldn't put it past him so okay so the dakota is on 72nd street in central park west um and i guess there's that there's that uh scene in the book where stacy in the beginning runs out of her apartment because she hears her parents fighting and she like runs to lanes um so i think we i think stacy lives on 59th or she lives like around columbus circle i think oh okay i thought she lived in the 80s no when she moved back i think no wait i think she lived around 59th in central park or something like that okay that would make sense because she does talk about columbus circle a lot yeah so she basically walked about i don't know 15 15 blocks mm-hmm. that's short short city blocks yeah those are the short blocks yeah I mean, so she's 13 pro- she's in good shape yeah so i was like okay that track she could have walked she could have walked the lanes mm-hmm. um i like that you're doing this as like mythbusters <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for a gotcha moment in this book. <laughs> you know as as it was said in the book lane's family has buckets of money mm-hmm so I kind of looked at to see if there were any apartments on sale at the Dakota right now. Ooh. So I went to Street Easy, uh, the preferred real estate listing for New York City. And I have the app on my phone. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's currently three three apartments for sale. Um, do we think she lives in a three-bedroom or a four-bedroom apartment? She's the only child, right? We don't have evidence that she has any siblings, as far mm-hmm. as I know. 
So there's a four bedroom, four and a half bath uh, on sale for $9.5 million. What the fuck? (laughs) What? I love when homes have more bathrooms than bedrooms. (laughs) I know. That's some rich people shit I've if I've ever heard yeah. it. Well, if the parents share a bedroom, they need they each need their own bathroom. You can't expect Oh, of course, naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um there's a three bedroom, two bath for seven point five million and a three bedroom, three bath for six point seven five million. Damn. So oh you do God. need buckets of money to live at the Dakota. Oh my God. I'd like just one bucket of money. <laughs> yeah, I know. So if Esme can do the calculations of how much nine point okay. five million dollars would have been in nineteen eighty nine, okay, I get. I'll just keep on. I'll just keep on talking. So, Great. the Dakota was like kind of known for its uh, like creative like residency. So it was like a lot of actors, obviously John Lennon, and I'll just name some notable people: um, Leonard Bernstein, Lauren Bacall, uh, Roberta mm. Flack, Judy Garland. Oh. Um, Boris Karloff, um, John Madden does not fit, but you live there. Um, Interesting. Rosie O'Donnell, uh, Gildna Radner, um, Connie Chung, and Maury Povich live there. I was just thinking about that bit in How I Met Your Mother where everyone sees Maury Povich all the time everywhere, but but they live on the Upper West Side in that show, so that tracks. <laughs> <laughs> There's continuity between the Babysitter's Club and How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Uh, it would be about $4.5 million in 1989. Man, that seems like a lot more in 1989 than 9.5 does in 2021. To me as well. Well, that's the best I could do in two minute Googling, but that's uh, great. you know, I don't stand, I'm not an economist. I don't stand by those numbers, but that's, that's what the internet has helped me say. Right. So another interesting fact, I think I told Esme this just because of Gary's, you know, kiss fandom is that it's a, it's a co-op. So you have to kind of be approved by the board to live there. Ooh. Um, yeah. So I think there was a, they are picky to let you in to live there. And I think there is some dissatisfaction with the board that they're moving away from creative people mm. and more towards people who just have money. Mm. Buckets, mm-hmm. particularly. Buckets of money. Um, right. But Lane's dad is both, right? Because he's a Broadway producer, so he counts. He would have fit in. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, so a few people who, who were rejected by the board um, were Melanie Griffith and Antonia Banderas. What? <laughs> yeah. And also Billy Joel, Carly Simon, and Gene Simmons. Damn. Damn. I know. <laughs> That's fucked up. Yep. I mean, Gene Simmons kind of makes sense to me. I'm not so surprised because they, because, you know, they uh, kiss often. Um, I, I'll make no comment, but kiss on the veracity of this, but they get dismissed as, you know, n- not not the right kind of art or whatever. But I feel um, like you are being more careful about what you say about Kiss right now than anything else you've said on this podcast. <laughs> Esme is like, I love Logan. <laughs> I don't want to speak ill of Kiss. I can't say anything I, that is or is not I, verified to be true. No, there's plenty of things about Kiss on the internet. I don't need to throw my <laughs> I don't need to throw my opinion in there. But um, but Billy Joel is really surprising to me, actually, and Carly Simon. I feel like yeah. those are two really respected musicians who were like important to the New York landscape. Yeah, I, I would have to go into a deeper dive 
on that. I am also surprised by all of those except Gene Simmons. Right. I mean, if they let Maury Povich in, why not? Billy <laughs> That's Dole? what I'm thinking. <laughs> why do you think they re- rejected Melanie and Antonio? Maybe Racist. They thought, maybe they, I don't know. I have no idea. It could also be, I feel like, with the co-op board, one person could just be like, I don't like Melanie Griffiths. Right. That's it. <laughs> you know? There's some, some long-standing background right. feud we don't know about. I exactly. hated Working Girl. It was trash. She can't live here. Is that She's in Working Girl, right? Yeah, she's in Working okay. Girl. Let's see. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, when Stacy keeps on turning her music on really loud when her parents are fighting. And I feel that's like a real classic, just like teen movie move is mm-hmm. to like go into your room and just turn up the music. Yeah. So before I get into my picks of the songs, it could be, do you guys have any, you know, oh. want to throw anything out? Yeah. It's 1989. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going to be less good at this. And it was loud. Mm-hmm. Which I what have we said that Stacy likes before? I think we said she liked, she had a little bit, a similar uh, taste in music to Claudia, but a little bit more sophisticated. A little because, more, yeah. Like a little also, funkier. Yeah, but I was thinking, if it's loud music, I, sh- I think she was going to turn on something that was more, I, I thought, more rock. Yeah. Or more, like... Uh, angry music. Yeah, I can't imagine it's like hip hop. I think it's rock. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Like maybe some George Michael. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when does metal arrive? I mean, it's I'm, around now. It's around, but I don't think thirteen-year-old girls on the Upper West Side are listening to it. <laughs> yeah. You don't think Judy is like, "Hey, Missy, I got a tape for you." <laughs> Learn about yeah, yeah. Learn about capitalism from this metal band. <laughs> okay, so these are like kind of these are these are hits of eighty nine, and also eighty eight. Just to well, keep it real. Well, so I just have one other thought. Um, mm-hmm. like maybe some Madonna, just because mm-hmm. like you can like say, I know it doesn't rock, but you can like really put Madonna on and blast loud and like isn't that like didn't Express Yourself come out in eighty nine? Yeah, I think that was out. And it's New York, like, mm-hmm. which is very much Madonna's town. So mm-hmm. I think it could be Madonna. Well, I didn't <laughs> think it was maybe something super. Um, I was thinking of something that had a slight bit of edge to it. Mm-hmm. Well, pop edge, you know. Right. So I came up with kind of three three songs that I feel like fit into different categories. The first one is uh, My Prerogative. Because <laughs> mm. I yes. feel like even though that's like like you know R and B pop, it's very like it's kind of like a rebellious thing, you yeah. know. It's like an empowerment song, empowerment song. So I feel like it had an edge to it. Yeah, her parents are like, you have to choose who gets you know where to live, and she's like, uh, it's my prerogative to fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, then the second one is. Uh, she drives me crazy by the fine young cannibals. Oh, the song that followed me and Anne around our lives yes. for years. <laughs> yeah, which I feel like also walked that fine line between you know has like an edge, but also very poppy. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. the third one is Welcome to the Jungle. 
by ah, Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Which, I mean, that was like a total also a pop hit. Yeah, it was a crossover yeah. hit. It and it's crossover definitely, hit. definitely yeah. rocks. And it's a good right. F you to the parents song. I'm so glad you brought, I'm so glad you brought this up as like a classic. Because the other thing that didn't come up when we were talking about divorce earlier is that you know, the other really classic sort of teen movie thing, but that also rings very true to me is when Stacy says, I hate you both, and then goes to her room, mm-hmm. um, which I was really impressed that Anna Martin put in this book because she does, like, she she writes things very truthfully, but also, like, we're supposed to stay on the side of everybody in Stony Brook and we're supposed to, be, but that's a, like, that's a thought and a thing that, like, mm-hmm. many, many kids say, if not most kids at some point in their lives. And so mm-hmm. I was, like, very thrilled to see it on the page in that argument and I feel like imagining her saying that and then putting on welcome to the jungle is like very satisfying and like just like a quick uh, random note uh that that store she goes into it's called like the last wound up or something is that Mm -hmm. it has like all that like this weird stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like what are those stores called because like growing up our store like that was evangeline's Mm -hmm. right and it's yeah. just like stores with weird trash keys in them or what yeah but there's yeah. always like it's just like random shit well the mall <laughs> version is spencer's gifts right yeah that's yeah. the mall oh version. okay but i feel like in new york and in san francisco that like cliff's variety in san francisco mm-hmm. is the really famous one and um like love saves the day in new york mm-hmm. or like ricky's mm-hmm. also um like i feel like in in big cities, there's like a local version. And apparently in Sacramento, we, we also got to have one. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like a novelty gift store. But it's just it's like, it's every teen's favorite store. Yeah. <laughs> like, why? Totally. totally. It's like, and then there's always like that little curtained off section that might have sex toys in it. Yep. <laughs> Scandalous. I When she talked about the, the selling the, the giant things, like uh-huh. the giant pencil, the giant paperclip and stuff. I remember that stuff hard from the late 80s, early 90s. And totally. I, I loved those things. I had a giant crayon. It was a bank. But I wanted just one that was non-functional, that was just yeah. decor. Yeah. Why do teens love novelty items? I think at some point we need to post a picture of Esme's bedroom as a teenager. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Very good. So that's all I got for pop stuff. Um, should we go into the candy? Yeah. Let's do it. So I got Oreos again. She likes an Oreo. Lifesavers, which are something she always has on hand, but I don't understand why. Taco chips. Yeah. Um, so taco chips, Anne. Yeah, I can't. So I think they're tortilla chips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they could be like Doritos. Mm-hmm. Hasn't she explicitly mentioned Doritos before, though? She has. Yeah. Okay. That's why. Are they generic? Maybe they're like store brand Doritos? I just have never heard of anyone refer to tortilla chips as taco chips. I feel like that happened in the 80s, but maybe I only remember it from Babysitter's Club. (laughs) It didn't strike me as non-familiar, but it might be from, from this. It's just very strange. First of all, tacos are like traditionally not like hard shell. They're soft. Yeah, but white America doesn't know that, especially in the eighties. Like people bought taco shells, and so we are reappropriating tacos, whitewashing tacos. Yeah, classic BSC. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) and then we have Twinkies, but of course Twinkies are often 
in Claudia's room and she eats a lot of them. But Stacy talks about how this has the fruit and cream filling. Oh, she says disgusting fruit and cream yeah. filling. Yeah. Which I was like, I don't remember this at all that mm. there was a Twinkie with a fruit and cream filling. I so remember I just it. Looked, you do? Mm-hmm. So I looked I looked it up really quick. And um, so in 1988, so this is probably when Anna Barnon was like writing the book, mm-hmm. like Hostess introduced fruit and cream Twinkies um, with a strawberry filling swirled into the cream. But they quickly discontinued it because... <laughs> yeah. Perhaps it was disgusting. <laughs> it was disgusting, and perhaps enough people read the Babysitters Club book where they saw Stacy saying they were disgusting, and that killed the product. Amazing. I really like this theory. This theory yeah. that Stacy McGill killed uh, off, killed yeah. and cream, single-handedly <laughs> killed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's good. Yeah, there is. Some, I mean, look, I like a, I like a regular strawberry shortcake, but there is something really upsetting about the fruit and cream Twinkie. I'm not surprised yeah. that Emily finds it disgusting, but like I also find it disgusting. It seems like it would be right up my alley. Have you had a Twinkie before, Emily? <laughs> no, never. What? Okay. Why did you both look at me like that? <laughs> You've never eaten a Twinkie? No, they've always looked totally that, foul to me. Yeah. That is the most Dawn thing <laughs> Emily just, has yeah. ever said on the show i can't believe it took us like 31 episodes to find that out i'm awesome (laughs) she's wearing her i'm awesome necklace okay so this means we have to send emily a twinkie yeah for sure and you have to eat it next time we talk about twinkies which will be the next book i'm sure book after that you will have to uh do a little taste test on air just like you did with the root beer barrel Moving on. <laughs> I, I already sent them to you. It's too late. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, enough of this. Enough of this crap. <laughs> Let's move on to tallies. <laughs> yeah, Stacy's a little bit. She there's a lot of sophisticated um, about both herself and Lane and other people. So that's four times. Uh, Marianne sensitive once. Claudia still has almond shaped eyes. Dawn as an individual who likes health food, and we're back with Mallory being practical and level-headed. So those are all of the tallies that get mentioned here. Um, I haven't done a total total for a while. I think Bossy is still in the lead with 48, followed closely <laughs> by Shy. The Jesse, Jesse telling jokes is still our least because we don't really describe Jesse other than she's black. Um, mm-hmm. So that's only three. And Claudia's almond eyes is only seven, but it's, it's slowly gaining on exotic. Exotic has eight and almond shaped mm. eyes has seven. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Robin, we like to name our episodes by um, picking our, selecting our favorite weird line from the book. If oh. you have any weird lines that you enjoyed that you'd like to share with us, I liked Stacy's um, interpretations of the apartment ad in the New York Times. The like, oh, those were good ad of her dad. So I, I chose Woodbug Fup um, as one of mine, which was what she thought wood burning fire, fireplace WBFP uh, oh stood gosh. for. And my other favorite line was disgusting fruit and cream mixture. <laughs> Back to Twinkies. I just thought it was good that Stacy was like not having it like diabetes be damned. Like she didn't want that anyway. Um, I really like, I think because I read it in a, uh, not the tone it was intended to be delivered in, but when Stacy and Stacy calls Dawn for advice and Dawn begins her sort of monologue of advice with the phrase, the thing about divorce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really good. 
which I read sort of like sardonically rather than earnestly. Mm -hmm. and It cracked me up a bit. (laughs) I think I like the part where Stacey, you know, her parents announce they're getting divorced. They, she doesn't talk to her parents and her parents say, you know, you have to talk to us. Her dad says, we're very sorry about what's happening, but you've had 24 hours to absorb the shock. Like now we have to get it done. And it's like 24 hours. Like she's 13 years old. I, <laughs> I love how they're like, time is money. We're in Manhattan. You're sophisticated. Yeah. Like we got to move 24. on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One That's day good. is plenty. I feel like 24 hours to absorb the shock would be a good episode title for this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. 24 hours to absorb the shock. That's fair. <laughs> I read that and I thought, oh, gosh, that's a tough crowd. Yeah. yeah. Very New York in the 80s, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robin, thank you so much again for being a guest today. We've loved chatting with you. Um, before oh, we God. before we do our final pizza toast, is there anything else you'd like to plug? Any current projects you're working on? Where people can find you on the internet? That sort of thing. Oh, you can definitely find me on Instagram, uh, just at Robin Benway, Twitter at Robin Benway, um, my website, RobinBenway.com. It's very, very straightforward. Um, yeah, just Far From the Tree is my latest book, and I should have a new one out within the next year or so. So we shall see. It's up to me at this point. So yeah, but yeah, Far From the Tree, and feel free if you want to see photos of my dog on my Instagram, you're more than welcome. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> What should we pizza toast to from this book? We could pizza toast to all different kinds of divorces. <laughs> I'm wondering about, we all seem to really like Judy's, I'm looking for Judy's specific quote. Hold on, I dog, I dog-eared it. Yes. We, could, we could toast to Judy's oh. anti-capitalist. The heads of corporations are liars. Do you hear me? They could hear her in Toledo. They're corrupting our country and their plastic and their Campbell soup. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to toast to Judy. Okay. Yeah. All right. Pizza toast to Judy. Pizza toast to Judy. You're welcome, Judy. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for. <laughs> <laughs>